Hello. My name is Dr. Mercurio Arborea, and I am the founder of the Arborea Institute. Through our unique blend of benign pharmacology, sensory therapy, and energy sculpting, we can guide you to a new, better, happier you. You are about to embark on a great journey. Let the new age of enlightenment begin. What is at stake is more than one small country. It is a big idea. A new world order. It's no longer a theory. What I'm about to say is fact. The secret organizations of the world power elite are no longer secret. They have planned and are now leading us into a one-world communist government. Welcome useless eaters to the Odd Man Out podcast, where we talk about hidden history, depolitical policy, occult deconstruction, economics, religion, and philosophy. I'm your rabbit hole aficionado, the Odd Man. Welcome. The affirmative task we have now is, uh, is to actually... Um, uh, create uh, uh, a new world order. Public policy could itself become the captain of a scientific, technological elite. And when that first cocaine was smuggled in on a ship, it may as well have been a deadly bacteria so much as it hurt the body, the soul of our country. But take my word for it, this scourge will stop. I'm a driving, thriving leader, a principal leader. I've got nothing on earth. You're trying to manipulate me. I've got nothing on earth I'm afraid to hide. I said I can do anything for socialism. Do anything. By inclination, the only thing I can do is to be an aggressive heterosexual with a man or woman. I don't care whatever you want to be. You be the woman. I would do that for socialism. Anything else I do further than that would have to be purely purely because I, I, I'm willing to do it for socialism. When people's temple has grown big enough, Jones can start teaching the real purpose of people's temple. The only thing that brings perfect justice, freedom and equality, perfect love and all of its beauty and holiness is socialism. So we were being introduced to socialism. Socialism meant that everybody would have the same. There would be no starvation. There would be no one going without any clothes. All the basic needs that a human being is supposed to have, they would have under socialism. He starts encouraging communal living. And let's say in a house that might have been designed for six people to live, he'll put 12, 15, or even 20. And they'll sleep on mattresses on the floor. That was so strange to me, but it felt good to sacrifice because the sacrifice was for the greater good. No one realized that Jim was using socialism to bring people in and control people. They got to go to heaven to be perfect. And that's the biggest cop out in the world. If you die a devil as a tree falls, so shall it lie. You're gonna, if you've been a dollar-grubbing, miserly creep here, you'll be a creep and you'd make a hell out of any heaven you went to. But the church tells you you can't be good till you get to heaven. That's what they tell you. Are there anything else? They'll say a brain scrum, those, those, those dreamer, dreamy-eyed socialists. Well, I'll tell you, we're going to have to dreamy-eye together or we're going to get blowed up together. We're going to live together or we're going to die together. What's happening, oddities? Thank you once again for listening to The Oddcast featuring me, The Odd Man Out. I appreciate you taking your time as always. And this week we're going to be looking into yet another cult. I can't get enough. This week we're going to look at Jonestown. We're going to look at the People's Temple, Jim Jones, his early life, and who influenced Jim Jones to become who he was. I want to kind of look at his early life and kind of see if we can kind of figure out why he turned out the way he did. Now, a few weeks ago I was on a show called The Mad Ones, and they asked me to come on there and talk about Jim Jones. And I had never really looked into it beyond the mainstream narrative. You know, I'd watched a couple documentaries, but I had no clue that there were all these other facts surrounding Jonestown and Jim Jones. So 
I thank them for getting me into the subject. And I'd researched so much that I just felt like, well, I'm going to have to do a show to add to the Odd Man archives. So here we are. I think the best place to start really is kind of trying to figure out how Jim Jones grew up because that shapes many people's lives and kind of helps us to understand why they turned out the way they did. And that could be either good or bad, of course. Now, James Warren Jones was born May 13th, 1931 in Crete, Indiana. His father, James Thurman Jones, was a World War I veteran and his mother was Lynetta Putnam. Now, James was about 16 years older than Lynetta. James, his father, had kind of a reputation for being kind of a drunk and a gambler, and he was supposed to be partially disabled from the war, which may or may not have been true. Anyway, after their marriage, they bought a farm, and they tried to make it on the farm but frankly the dad supposedly was too lazy and this was during the Great Depression so there may have been other factors in there but the mom ended up getting a couple of jobs so the thing you have to remember about little Jimmy is he was a latchkey kid so his mom worked two jobs and was gone all the time and from what we've read his dad loved to just leave him at the house and go down to the pool hall and gamble and drink. And so Jim kind of raised himself for the most part up until one point when a family friend, a neighbor who had seen him playing by the railroad tracks with his little red car decided she was going to have to kind of take him under her wing. And so she did. And she began to bring him over to her house when his mother and father was gone. Now after the farming venture fell through, They moved to a small shack that didn't even have indoor plumbing around 1934. Now his neighbor friend, she started taking him to church. And this is kind of where he learned about religion because his family didn't go to church. And it was no big deal, just a regular church, not one of these charismatic churches. And so he kind of got to know a little bit about how everything works. She taught him how to read the Bible. And he really became a voracious reader, as people say. You read voracious reader in a lot of his bios, but he loved to read. As he got older, he got into Joseph Stalin, Karl Marx, Mao Zedong, Adolf Hitler, Mahatma Gandhi. Now, the legend has it that he didn't like what Hitler stood for as far as the racial cleansing and hating the Jews and all that, but he loved the way Hitler commanded respect and was able to control people. And so you can see why if you look later on with what happened in Jonestown. Now Jones was kind of a weirdo. He made great grades in school, voracious reader, but he was very poor. And so this kind of alienated him from other children. And so I think that probably is where a lot of his animosity came from and I think of course being a latchkey kid being neglected from your parents unloved is going to cause you to have major anger too so I think that because he was poor as he grew up he took on this whole socialist communist idea and really took it to the next level it's funny because I did the show on Elizabeth Clare Prophet and the church universal and triumphant and after I recorded that show I was watching a bio on her and they were talking about how she grew up very poor and so I thought that was interesting that she and Jones have that in common. One thing I've noticed with some of these cults is Pentecostal churches. These churches where you just have to have one of the seven gifts of the Spirit and if you don't you're basically an outsider They have to speak in tongues or be able to heal or do this, that, and the other. And it's really, really over the top. And so I noticed that Jones got into this Pentecostal movement. And Mark Prophet, Elizabeth Clare Prophet's husband, also got into the Pentecostal movement before he went totally New Age guru. Not only that, but if I'm not mistaken, I believe that... Sun Myung Moon got into 
the Pentecostal movement as well before he did his own thing and also started a cult. Now, Jones kind of figured out a way to wrangle kids over to his house by doing crazy things, fun things, putting on these little shows, preaching to them. He collected animals, as many animals as he could get. Any stray animals that come around, he would put them in cages and make them his pets. And so that's one way he would get kids over. And he was kind of, you know, kind of freaky. Like, he didn't know how to really be around people. He wasn't cultured enough to really know how to make friends, I think. There's one story that claimed that he actually locked two of his friends in a barn with him one night, all night long, until they said, Heil Hitler, and then he finally let them out. I don't know if that's even true, but that's one of the legends. There's also other people who've testified that he actually would take animals, dead animals, I don't know if he killed them or not, and tried to kind of uh, do operations on them and put one part of theirs on the other and sew them up and all those kind of freaky things, which really is very, very creepy. And one of his childhood friends claimed that Jones's dad was associated with the Ku Klux Klan, which was really, really big in Indiana at the time for some reason. I've read that they really had a large presence, more so than most states, even some of the southern states, in Indiana at that given time. And I'm not sure what the deal is with that. And there's also a famous tale that Jim brought a black friend home one time and his dad made him leave, and that really severed their relationship for many, many years. But that's never been confirmed, so I don't know if that's true or not. But as he got older, old enough, his parents separated. And he and his mom, he moved to Richmond, Virginia with her. And he went to school, made great grades. In 1948, he graduated from high school with honors. Now, at this time... He was working as an orderly at Richmond's Reed Hospital, and apparently he was doing great. People liked him, up until one point where people started noticing he was acting weird. Supposedly, one co-worker witnessed him manhandle a patient in traction while dry shaving him, resulting in the patient's injury with a razor. Anyhow, it was at Reed Hospital where Jones met nurse Marceline Baldwin who would go on to be his wife in 1949, and she would die with him in Jonestown. After that, they moved to Bloomington, Indiana, where he attended Indiana University. There, supposedly, he heard a speech by Eleanor Roosevelt about the plight of African Americans. So in 1951, the couple relocated once again to Indianapolis. And there... Jimmy went to Indiana University for two years and then took night classes at Butler University, finally earning a degree in secondary education in 1961, 10 years after enrolling. Now, allegedly in 1951, he was 25 years old and he began attending gatherings of the Communist Party USA in Indianapolis. And the word is that he became irritated with the harassment during the McCarthy hearings, particularly regarding the event that he attended with his mother focusing on Paul Robeson, after which she was harassed by FBI agents in front of her co-workers for attending. Yeah, they say that Joan's mother had an affinity for communism as well. They say that Jones really did not like the persecution of people who came out and said they were communist and was really, really troubled by that. Now, it says here in the Book of Knowledge, he really got frustrated during the trial of Julius and Ethel Rosenberg. Jones said he asked himself, how can I demonstrate my Marxism? The thought was, infiltrate the church. Now, he claims that a Methodist district superintendent actually helped him get a start in the church, even though he knew he was a communist. And he became a student pastor in 1952 at the Somerset Southside Methodist Church. But he later claimed that he left the church because the leaders forbid him to integrate blacks into the congregation. 
Now, we don't know if that's true or not, but around this time, supposedly Jones witnessed a faith healing service at a seven-day Adventist church. So he saw how much attention this got, and some bells rang in his head instantly. I think I can get money out of these type of things, and I can get people, and I can attract crowds. So around 1956, he somehow organized a convention at Indianapolis's Cato Tabernacle. He somehow talked a well-known pastor, Reverend William M. Bronham, to come, and he was a healing evangelist and Pentecostal leader. So this guy was supposedly one of those who could tell you your name, your address, what you had for dinner, why you were there, what ailments you had, these kind of things that we know most of the time are already pre-planned out. And it says that they had their convention bringing about 11,000 people, which is quite a lot. And so after this, Jones started doing these fake healings himself. And this is really how he started to bring in lots and lots of followers. And you can go on and actually see some of the videos of him doing these fake healings. There's tales of people having cancer, supposedly. And what they have is actually chicken parts that they will spit up into their hand as if they spit up the cancer. All these kind of crazy things. And these people, of course, are plants in the crowd that work for Jim or are his members of the church already. Now, he decided that he needed to name his church, his cult. So he said it's going to be the People's Temple Christian Church Full Gospel, and later it was shortened to the People's Temple. Now, he was ordained in 1957 as an official minister by the Independent Assemblies of God. And Jones really looked up to this William Branham and really took a lot of cues from him. And later that year, they had another convention where Branham headlined, and that went over really well, and Jones gained a whole lot more followers. Now, it was also that year that Jones would become president of the Worldwide Pentecostal Convention Board. And forward to 1964, it says Jones was ordained by the Disciples of Christ. Now, I went to a Disciples of Christ church for quite a few different years, and I have family members that are affiliated with the Disciples of Christ, which really surprises me because there is nothing Pentecostal about that church. It's very, very almost cookie-cutter watered down, which is the reason I left it. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of good people there, but it's just very, very slow, and there's not a lot of action happening, if you know what I mean. So that surprises me that he was affiliated with that church, but maybe they were different way back in the day. Now, this has been my favorite part so far of looking into this whole subject. I found out about a guy named Father Divine. And they had mentioned it on the Mad Ones. Cam had mentioned him. And I briefly read about Father Divine in just a little excerpt before the show, but I had no idea who the guy really was. Now, we're going to talk all about Father Divine, and I think he's an important historical figure for several reasons, but... It says here that Father Divine told Jones, find an enemy and make sure you know who that enemy is, as it will unify those in the group and make them subservient to you. Now, who was Father Divine? He was the Jim Jones before Jim Jones without any of the death stuff. So whatever he learned from William Branham, he learned the other stuff from Father Divine. Now let's look at this historical figure, Father Divine, who's going to blow your mind, or at least he did mine. <laughs> that rhymed, right? So, Father Divine, he was born George Baker in Rockville, Maryland in 1876 to his parents, who were said to be former slaves, George and Nancy Baker. He officially changed his name to Reverend Major Jealous Divine. Now, who was he? He was a black leader of something called the Peace Mission Movement that he and his wife formed in Sayville, New York. 
Yeah, Jim Jones got many ideas from Father Divine and even stole a few of his followers. Divine started his ministry, if you want to call it that, around 1912. He claimed that he was chosen to be a messenger of God and there was no reason to wait on heaven after you die. He believed heaven was here on earth. Allegedly, he told his converts that Christian hymns were written by whites in order to get them to accept the suffering here on earth that would lead to a heavenly reward. Which is weird because there's plenty of black hymns and they're really all about different things, not just suffering, but whatever. Now, eventually, Father Divine would declare that he was, in fact, God on earth. He even had his own newspaper called The New Day, which advertised his and other approved businesses. Now, we're talking about a black man in the early part of the 1900s. Even in New York, this was controversial, everything that he was doing. Now, he eventually moved to New York City because he lived in one of the outskirts of New York at that point, doing all of his stuff. And he moved to this commune area, that's what he was calling it, where it housed a lot of different people. And so the people that would attend his church and became his followers would live there with him. It's really a mystery where Father Divine got his money. He claimed that he didn't get it from his parishioners. He was very adamant about that, in fact. And so it's a mystery to this day, really, how he acquired so much money because he had businesses, he had hotels, restaurants. So his lodgings there in New York... It was said that he only charged two bucks a week for people to stay. Now, they had separate floors for men and women, even if you were married. And it was these large rooms with multiple beds in there, multiple twin beds. And you can see the videos, which I've included in my show notes, where each bed was made very nicely with a nice 8 by 10 of Father Divine sitting right there in the middle of the bed. You can actually see these big pictures on his properties that said, Father Divine is God. He was very strict in what he would allow to go on in his businesses and his lodging areas and homes. No sex, no drugs, and no drinking. Now eventually when he had quite a few businesses, he would have his people working there and he would take a portion of their money, he said, to pay for expenses. Now he decided, for whatever reason, to eventually move to Long Island. And one of the things I've heard is that he wanted to get away from the loud music, the boisterous loud music, the jazz scene, and all those kinds of things because he thought it was bad for his parishioners. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's just kind of one of the legends that goes along with this whole thing. Now, while they were living in Long Island, that's when Father Divine began to study economics. He was no dummy whatsoever. He obviously was a black man who was able to acquire all these properties and all these followers in the early part of the 1900s. And you can see these very well spoken in his videos. There's some pretty clear footage of him. Very well spoken, dressed to the nines, very charismatic. And what his aims were by studying economics is he wanted to expand his commune and his businesses. He wanted to make this a much bigger thing and he was doing a great job of it. It's said that in his heyday, he had thousands of followers here in the United States and in Europe and other parts of the world. And I'd never even heard of him. So while they're in Long Island, they said that started to get a lot of attention, some of it negative. People are starting to get nervous. There were a lot of mixed couples and mixed people hanging out together, which was still, even in New York, wasn't the norm at the time. Things were getting kind of heated in the area, and Father Divine decided he was going to take it on the road and maybe expand his flock by talking to other people in different cities and other areas. And so, with this, it worked like a charm, and other communes began to start up. So he was early on a proponent of this communistic, communitarian kind of idea, which has its pluses and minuses, of course, as long as there's not some kind of benevolent dictator or one-world government controlling it. I say have at it if that's what you want to do. And I'm sure that he was able to help many, many people. 
It said that he would feed his people that worked for him very, very well and not charge them a thing. In fact, he was famous for having these big banquets where he would feed all of his people and then let people come in from the streets. And you can even see people lined up for a couple of blocks waiting to get the food. And it looks very, very fancy. And so everything was going great. But in 1932, there was allegations by one of his parishioners, if you will, that he was withholding her money and her property. And so she took him to court. And lo and behold, she won. He was jailed for several months. And when he got out, he started doing better than ever. So it only helped him when he got locked up. And I'm sure they, some of these guys, you know, they get locked up and that gives them even more street cred. Now, I'm not just talking, it's not a, a black thing or anything. That is just a leader thing. Now, at this point, he was acquiring various properties he had various restaurants where he would supposedly charge a very small amount for people to eat, and he would have very nice hotels. But as good as it was, and I guess his heyday was probably there in the early 1930s, but in the later 1930s, some followers began to leave. Now forward a few years to 1942, he decided to move his headquarters once again one final time to Philadelphia. It wasn't long after he had been there that his longtime wife, Penaniah, fell ill. Now, we don't really know what had happened to her, what she had, but he publicly declared that he was going to heal her. Well, a few months go by, and unfortunately, she dies. Now, here's the kicker. There's two legends. There's one she fell ill. Then there's another one that I saw from this documentary from this group called Why with Two Whys. I put it in my show notes and I suggest you watch it because it's really good. It's a short documentary, but it's a doc on Father Divine. And it just says that she disappeared and only a few of the flock knew where she was buried. So it didn't even say anything about her getting sick. It just says she just disappeared one day. So that's 1943. And he is wifeless. And three years would go by before he would remarry a 20-year-old white woman from Canada. Now, here's the kicker, okay? He claimed that this new young wife was actually his old wife. That her spirit, his old wife, Penaniah, was in this young white woman and that that's the way he healed her and people bought that and just took this girl in as the mother in fact he had his people call him father and her mother and the former wife mother as well and that's where jim jones i suppose got the father and the mother thing because that's exactly what he did with the people's temple now remember this was 1946, and this was very controversial still at the time when an older black gentleman would marry a young white girl. That was just not heard of at the time. And as you see this old footage, you can see that it looks like his flock is mostly women. A lot, a lot, a lot of women. And there's even still some people that are still alive today that still follow Father Divine. Now, at this point, he and his new wife had bought this gorgeous mansion in Woodmont in Philadelphia on 72, ah, oh, 72 virgins, acres of land. Now, they did have some of the poorer followers living there, which they called angels and archangels. And I suppose that they were helping serve them. I don't know, at least him. But uh, I just kind of, you got to figure it's a mansion. It's a big place. They get to stay as long as they work and help out around the house. There's nothing wrong with that, really. The funny thing is, his followers still live in Woodmont in that mansion to this day. So look that up, the Woodmont Mansion in Philadelphia. In fact, they still, his church, if you want to call it that, still own three properties plus the mansion. 
they lost everything else. You know, they just didn't have the money to pay for it. And so eventually things started to get sold off, or taken, repossessed. So they still have the four properties left. There is a majestic hotel, I believe in Philadelphia, called the Divine Lorraine Hotel. Beautiful hotel with a dining hall at the top. It was gorgeous. You can look at the black and white pictures. Just a beautiful place. Very well constructed, detailed, and they've redone this hotel. They've refurbished it. Looks fantastic. It's like a historical place now. So check that out too. But just going back to 1956, Jim Jones contacted Father Divine, who was, I guess, a legend at the time. And of course, Jones was really in the scene with the look he was even working with the black panthers and you know he was working with these human rights and civil rights people so he decided to consult the man himself father divine who had been doing this for quite a few years now and been bringing people together he was kind of known for bringing the races together and stuff like that and also he had this communal idea which jones really liked so he began meeting with him, met with Father Divine multiple times over a 10-year period. And like I said, he was interested in the communal living, so he wanted to find out how Divine had pulled this off. He wanted to find out about how Divine had created these job networks, these job-finding networks where he would help his people find jobs. So Jones wanted to know about that as well because that would bring directly in money for Jones and Divine, even though Divine said that that wasn't the case. It had to be, at least to an extent. And also, Father Divine had this farming project. You know, he had 72 acres of land on there. And that is where Jones found out and really got the idea for the farming when they would go to Guyana. And so he got a lot of information and a lot of direction from Father Divine. Father Divine told him to dress the part. Dress very nice, look the part of a leader, and people will respect you. And you can go back, of course, and see the pictures of Father Divine. As I said, he dressed to the nines. And it was said that Jones had told his friend Haldeman he was very impressed with the obedience Divine was able to command over his people. And Jones knew that Father Divine was getting pretty old by the time they had had their last meetings. And he said he was going to take Father Divine's flock. And he had this idea. He said, you see how Divine has tricked his flock into believing his younger wife has the spirit of his old wife. Well, why can't I pretend that once Father Divine dies, I have his spirit? Now, I don't think he actually ever acted that out, but he was able to get some of his followers, not all, but some. And there's even a video where one of Jones's ladies, maybe his wife, one of his assistants, and him are talking on the microphone and they're really putting down Father Divine and saying that he wasn't charismatic and his sermons were very boring and all that. But as you can go back and watch the footage, nobody was bored there watching him unless they were maybe, you know, maybe in his later years, maybe, I don't know. Father Divine would pass away in 1965 and Jones didn't try to pretend he was Father Divine reincarnated but the funny thing is with Divine's flock they believed he was God incarnate and that he didn't really die now I don't know if they'd ever tried to claim that someone else's body was inhabited by Father Divine after he passed or not I didn't read anything about that but I don't know you never know right so now we know a pretty good background of Jim Jones from his childhood up until 1965. And I think that that is enough for us to kind of see why Jones turned out the way he did for the most part. Very neglected child. You know, there's stories of his friends telling him that, like one of his best friends, he went hunting with him once and supposedly... They got mad at each other, and Jones shot him in the foot. There's a story of Jones killing a cat. So we know that Jones was a weirdo, neglected, latchkey kid, grew up very poor, which made him very, very angry, no attention from his family. 
And the crazy thing we're going to learn is he was not a believer in God or Jesus. He was a very angry guy who used religion at first to gather followers so he could push a socialism, communism type of thing. And I think that that's very important because that's been left out of almost all of the mainstream documentaries I've seen. I haven't seen the newest one. I think it's on Netflix or whatever, but I just think that that is very, well, it's not really surprising that the mainstream media would leave that out, pop culture and whatnot, because they do seem to have an affinity for socialism and communism. So they're not going to tell us that. And they want us to think that all Christians are fundamentalists and it's a cult anyway. So they don't tell us he didn't believe in Jesus and said these terrible things about Christianity and the Bible. That's big things that that have been left out of the history books. It's unbelievable. So you think about all these different historical events and you wonder what all very important facts have been left out. And you can bet it's probably been a ton of them, especially in the more modern history as it's been pretty darn easy for them to fool the people with the technology that's been available. Now, I don't know, maybe it was just me, but I found the story of Father Divine to be fascinating. Just a guy who accomplished all that at a time when he was able to accomplish it. And of course, I don't agree with him calling himself God. And you know, really was no talk of Jesus that I saw or Christianity in that whole thing, That the several videos that I watched. So I think it all reflected around him. And that's probably just another thing that Jim Jones took away from him. Although Jim would throw in Bible verses here and there and use them for kind of trying to prove his point from time to time. But also he would twist them and say that they were wrong and they were evil and stuff like that. So, so many of these different leaders, these occult leaders, have similarities because people are so similar. Our likes, our wants, our fears... You know, the things that make us angry, very, very similar. No matter where you go, no matter what era it is, no matter which side you visit, which side you're trying to indoctrinate, very similar techniques can be used to control the masses. And so I think that's one of the main reasons why I am doing these shows on cults. So next we'll look into Jones and see his connections to important Democrats. And like I said, the Black Panthers, and other civil rights activists. I think Jim was probably at the right place at the right time, taking advantage of a lot of things, certainly taking advantage of Father Divine, his techniques and whatnot. So I think we can learn, hopefully, from these guys and why they became the way they were and how they operated. And I can't help but think about, and I mentioned this on the Mad Ones episode, but this haunting picture, probably the most haunting picture I've ever seen, of all these dead people from Jonestown in front of Jim Jones' big chair that he would sit in with a big sign behind it that said, those that don't know the past are doomed to repeat it. And it'll just give you chills when you look at it. So we got to understand the psychology and the thinking of these madmen, these psychopaths. So we don't keep repeating the same mistakes over and over. And you know, I've said this several times, and I'll keep saying it through these cult series that I do, but these cults have a lot of the same techniques. They use the, the leaders use some of the same techniques that mainstream politics uses. It's very similar especially with the Democrats and Republicans, it's very cultic. It's very tribal, and they use a lot of the same type of techniques, and your emotions are picked apart. A lot of the very same emotions that people pick apart when they're trying to mind control you for a cult. And so I hope you have enjoyed this first episode on Jim Jones and Father Divine, of course, the Jonestown Massacre, which we haven't got to yet. But I love you. I thank you for your support. If you want to join my patron, it's forward slash the odd man out. Become a member of the Society of Cryptic Savants and help me out if you can. But if you can't help me out, help another content maker out. Or 
just please share the show and tell people about the show because, you know, it's getting harder and harder to get any attention on the mainstream social media networks. And that's the way we advertise and get word of mouth out. The only other way is for you guys to share it. That's, that's it. So thank you for your support. I hope you'll continue to do that. Cheers and blessings. And remember, their order is not our order. See you guys. God bless. Ah, damn it to hell, I'm telling you. Making apologies. I don't know what to do with you women. I'd just soon die. Shit, I'd just soon die. I was hurt. I was hurt. I'm going to tell you right off, Sister Johnson. I was hurt. I was hurt with you. Dr. Shack interested in you, and you said you feel sorry for Stanley. You don't know Stanley's background. Stanley's background. You women always make apologies for these pricks. I'm going to tell you, though, you made me ready to die. I'm glad for you. I love you. I'd give my life, but I'm ready when you feel so. When a doctor's interested in you, and uh, then I'm ready for it. By God, I'm ready for death. When you women won't take freedom, when you got the goddamn freedom right in your fucking hand, I don't know what the hell to do with you. Stanley. Somebody feels sorry for him. Who in the fuck's gonna feel sorry for you? Why didn't he feel sorry for you while you were in town representing us? Why in the fuck didn't he feel sorry for you? Where your ass at, Stanley? Well, you better not get your nose up, because I'm sick of your ass, too. You nearly got Marston killed for trying to fight off the contract killers that were coming after you. You goddamn near got her killed. And I still stood behind him and said the sons of bitches would have to come through our whole church to save you. And you feel sorry for him? Well, you sure made it. You didn't make it clear. You, when I stopped you, and what I'm saying, sweet, and as much as I love you, I'd give my eyes for you. If you'd say that to me, what you, what's really going on in your head? Because I was standing there and I said, here, you, you got a good deal? And I'm telling him, you got a good deal. A doctor, the straight A student, and you know what the f*** to do. You know what the f*** to do. You know which decision to do. And I told you what I'm going to tell you. I wouldn't pay no fucking attention to bodies. I, what the f*** bodies he got? What the f*** bodies any of us got? All that goddamn crazy shit. What is love? If love isn't based, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to die. Shit, I'm ready to die. And you'll not find anyone with the parapsychological, the extra-dimensional, the paranormal, the ESP, whatever you wish to call it, the precognitive, extraterrestrial, or paranormal. It makes no difference what you name it. Parapsychological, as I said, are the gifts of the spirit. You'll find no one that has them developed on this continent to this intensity. And you've got a lot of things about knowledge that you've heard metaphysically about karma and reincarnation and so forth and so on. But how do you know it's true? You don't know anything is true, only what you've been told. A very high evolutionary understanding. If you have a deep refinement in your superego, then you could trust your judgment of the Bible. First, it would have to be, this would be required. You would have to be socialistic to be able to trust the Bible. Well, I'll explain that. The only ethic by which we can lift mankind today is some form of socialism. There is a smattering of it in the, in the New Testament. It's very evidently clear on the day of Pentecost that they, they believed were together and had all things common. They brought their possessions to the apostles' feet, and the apostles departed and parted to every man as he had need, from each according to his ability, to each according to his need. Now we've been told that this was a Marxian, a Marxist uh, concoction, but it isn't. It's, it's older than the Bible by far. It's a couple of thousand years, and then even more than that in, in its age. You can, you can trust no judgment that is not based upon the highest ethic of socialism. Now why I say the highest ethic, the dialectic of history proves I think unquestionably that man is capable of perfection, that he does evolve and grow to a better and a, and a more mature understanding. Of course, I admire loyalty. There's one thing, too, I admire is a principal loyalty that will go along with something. Out of the voice of Jesus himself, Jesus was away shore to teach people how to live, to get their head out of the sand or out of the sky. He said, don't pray to go to heaven. And even Paul said, don't look up to go to heaven. He said, the righteous faith saith on this wise, the word, heaven, God, is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thine heart. 
Don't say who will go up to heaven and bring him down or who shall go into the deep and bring him up from the grave. But what saith it? The word is within thee. Heaven is on earth. That's the only heaven you'll find. God is here. That's the only God you'll know. Make yourself God in the 10th chapter of John. And he said, it is written, all of you are gods. He said, I'm no different than you. Everybody's a god. So Jesus is God. I am God. You are God. That if it is time for me to lay down my body, I will. But all the king's horses and all the king's men cannot bring me down until the time has come. Listen, all ye scoffers and poisoners. We're feeling good in the house of Jones today. When we face a depression, the people that are the most unemployed, the greatest social problems, they're the ones that are going to go. Say, it'll never happen to me. Oh, get off of it. The Jews, capos that sold out the Jews, they reserved the worst fate for them. They castrated them, made them eat their own gonads. If they didn't kill them, they sent them on to Israel so that the, the, the Haganah would kill them. All those Jews that worked so faithfully to sell out their brothers and sisters. And I got some Uncle Toms and Aunt Janes in here. Say, I'm gonna, I'm all right. The man likes me, you good house nigger. You're just so good. You're just such a good house nigger. When they brought that snake in here the other day, that rattler brought him in here and dropped it and was biting, hissing mad. All the people can tell you in Redwood Valley, I've got that snake tamed. It won't kill anything anymore because I don't like killing. I don't even kill anything to eat. And that snake eats egg right out of my hand. He didn't like it. He fussed and hissed and... And I said, you cut that out. And I'd spank his little belly. And now he just crawls around. He's five and a half foot long. He crawls around, lays on my shoulder. And any place people can handle him, anyone can touch him now. Why would you worry about a little old green snake when you got all these white two-legged devils running loose? And a whole lot of black ones, too. A whole lot of brown ones. At least it's the most reasonable thing that I find to believe. If you're going to get involved with religion, reincarnation is the most reasonable thing to believe in. Otherwise, God is a dirty old man that ought to be ra raped. Yeah. Maybe that might straighten out the sky god. I don't know. And I, don't, I don't know. That was a Freudian slip that some of you psychologists in my midst will have to analyze. Most sex, they say, is oriented in violence, so maybe there's something to that. I would do anything, any means for this church, for this church. if anyone caused or tried to harm this church, I would kill the president or stake my life on this church or to protect the pastor. My name is John Harris, and I'm a violent revolutionary, and I kill three children. Your name? Corrine Jackson. I would kill any government official that would stand in the way of our church's progress. Your name? Armella Tardy. Armella Tardy. What would, what would you do for this cause? Oh, I would, I would kill, um, murder, I'd do anything, you know. Who? Oh, I'd kill Nixon, Ford, anybody else like him. All right. What's your name? Eddie Richards. Where do you live? 1719 15th Street. Who would you kill? I'd kill the president. Oh, I would give my life. My name is Marilyn Pursley. I'm a violent revolutionary. 
What's your name? Viola Ford. What are you, Viola? A violent revolutionary. What are you, Beatrice? I am a revolution missionary. My name is Jimmy Anderson, and I'm a violent revolutionary, and I'll kill for this cause. What is your name? Ulick Richmond Jr. What are you? I'm a violent revolutionary. I do anything for the skull. Pat Keeler, I am a violent revolutionary. What is your name? Miguel de Pena. What are you, Miguel? A violent revolution. But I hope you'll be more sympathetic for those dear hearts outside that say, God is dead. God is dead. My bishop knows that I'm an atheist. I'm an atheist. I'm an atheist. He, he knows that I, I, I recognize only love when I say, I'll say, God is love. Well, you heard my preaching, right? Because I save everybody that comes to me. But don't call me your creator, sky God. I would rather you call me the devil because he had the sense to rebel. He had the good sense to rebel. I then would have nothing to do with God. Have nothing to do with that sky god. Have nothing to do with this Bible. You're going to help yourself or you'll get no help. There's only one hope of glory. That's within you. And I'm showing you the thing within you. The revolution in me is showing you the Christ revolution in you. That's the only hope of glory. There's no hope up there. Nobody's going to come out of the skies. Nobody will ever come to save us. There's no heaven up there. We'll have to make heaven down here. The worst enemies we got are preachers. The worst enemies we've got is religion and its churches. That's the worst. I was the lawyer and attorney for the notorious Jim Jones. Jim Jones had set up his colony in the forests of Guyana. For they were not Christians. Jim Jones did not believe in God. It was a cult. He was a Satanist. Indeed, he believed in anything. He believed in the communist ideology, which he proclaimed in his last will and testament, leaving everything to the Soviets. Freedom and equality, perfect love, and all of its beauty and holiness is socialism. So, 